Welcome to the San Diego Psychological Association's podcast, Diving Into Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Carcel. This podcast has been developed with the intent to inform and educate the general public and providers and should not be relied upon for any other purpose. The content, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and not those of the San Diego Psychological Association. Today's show is on depression. I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. John Deem. Welcome, Dr. Deem, and thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is a broad uh, mental health topic. Um, But you know what's interesting? I don't know if you have this same situation. I get a lot of people just in the general public that say, yeah, I know what depression is, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And I'm so glad we're talking about this today. And from your perspective, from a psychiatric perspective and being a psychiatrist, I think it's going to be really helpful to get some clarity. thought we could just kind of dive in and talk about what is depression. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good approach to it. I think, you know, everyone has some idea, some mental image for what it looks like, but it's really tough to connect the dots when maybe it's happening to you or someone that you love. So absolutely. So by starting with this, you know, the big question that I also get, and again, kind of gearing this talk a little bit more to the general public, but I think it's also great for mental health professionals, the genetics, the genetic predisposition and, you know, environment, right? The nature versus nurture. So based on what you know in your research and and your experience, where does it come from? Where does depression come from? Oh, nature versus nurture. Well, in a word, it's both. So I I hope you weren't looking for a concise answer. Because we just don't have one to give. <laughs> no. um, yeah, you know, I think we're still struggling to figure that out, even in 2022. And with all the advances that we have, there is definitely a genetic component, right? It runs in families and there's a higher risk that that's associated with that. So there is something to be said. And are you familiar with kind of when they, uh, what are called twin studies? Yes. These, Yeah, the twins that are separated at birth. So there's definitely an overlap where some very high number, like 60 or 70% will develop. Um, depression completely independently of each other. I mean, that's practically the same person, same DNA. So obviously there's a genetic component, but then there's the nurture side, right? Where does maybe a parent who's depressed, are they not responding to kind of the child's needs? Are they not responding in an emotional way? They just, they're not capable of it. They're just depressed and they can't really connect with that, you know, emotional expression, that vulnerability to be able to express joy and happiness or have the motivation and energy, then does that have downstream effects for somebody that then develops that later on in life? I don't think there's a really concise um, answer. What I always tell people is that if it runs in your family and you start to feel it or you start to see it in other family members, yeah, it, go talk to somebody, go take it, you know, seriously and, and mm-hmm. give it some some real credence and thought because there's a very real chance. And maybe if it doesn't run in your family, I like to say that, you know, if it walks like a duck, but it's feeling too down to quack, it's probably a depressed duck. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I, I want to add to that a little bit. I think that was great explanation. You know, depression is different from normal mood fluctuations. Um, it's not the things that affect us on our day-to-day life. Those are temporary emotional responses. And I always like to associate that with like the ocean, right? Waves that ebb and flow. That's a very natural thing that we all experience. We might have a momentary uh, you know, situation that causes us to feel anger. Um, we may have something that causes us to feel sadness, you know, 
some momentary anxiety. These are things that are very natural, but depression is different. Depression is a mental health syndrome. Um, And one of the things when I was uh, kind of doing a little bit of my own updated research, especially with COVID, it was interesting to me to see, according to the World Health Organization, uh, they're approximating about 300 million people worldwide have depression. Mm -hmm. And they think that that's underreported. And I agree. I think it's wholeheartedly underreported. And I think it's good that maybe we can talk about the difference between our normal everyday moods and fluctuations and and affect versus depression, which is a different thing altogether. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I I really love that question. I think that's a a really fabulous one because I do think it's underreported. 300 million is almost the population of the United States. So that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the ones that we really have some idea or some projection for what that looks like, which doesn't capture the people that are dealing with something a little bit different. And you're right. Everyone will go through something in their life uh, uh, that really kind of affects them in a way that is negative, doesn't feel good, gets you down, maybe irritable or angry. Where it starts to trend into depression is really, I look at it as kind of functionality. At what point is it starting to impact your life and other areas of your life? And it's kind of not going away. Um, It's If you look at the kind of our manuals for this kind of thing, it's estimated that like 20% of kind of Western world or American population will have an episode of depression. I actually think that's probably higher because uh, I think we've all known people who've kind of struggled in their life. But it's a question of did they recognize it and were they really were they at a point where they wanted to do something about it, where it felt strong enough and, and they were symptomatic enough that they really wanted to go explore what those options look like. So back to the functionality, it's where someone, uh, to use the uh, the ocean analogy, I think there are waves and then depression is the riptide. Depression is the thing that kind of grabs you and, and yanks you out to sea. There are strong ones, there are uh, you know less strong ones. So that kind of fo- follows of, are you having a bit of a mild depression or is it getting a, a little more severe and you're really swept out to sea and struggling to keep your head above water? The way that I, I look at it and conceptualize it is that functionality piece where somebody really starts to drop off, you know, kind of life has lost a little color, just feels a little bit washed out. They're withdrawn. Maybe they don't feel like they have the energy to socialize with their family, with their friends, uh, within their relationships, or maybe it's, you know, that they can't participate with their partner or, or if they're single, that they just have no energy or desire to date. And that starts to kind of become part of that syndrome and are a big withdrawal from life. And then it starts to kind of snowball from there, depending on kind of severity and how much that starts to affect someone and impair their, their kind of functioning in their life and their ability to get out there and, and live the life they want to. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought up the level of severity. And I love that you brought up the riptide. That That is such an important visual, I think, of, yes, we go through these ebbs and flows, but this grabs us. This is something that, you know, we cannot do our day-to-day functioning the way we used to. Mm-hmm. And I think elaborating a little bit on the levels of severity can be really helpful. What are those levels? And, you know, including maybe psych- a psychotic uh, depression. Yeah, it's kind of a sense of loss of control, kind of back to that riptide. I think that's where people start to just feel that this is getting away from them. And that's probably a, there's not a clear like dividing line on these things, right? But I think that's probably a a useful framework of when are you dealing with kind of normal life problems that maybe have you down a little bit versus getting to a point where you feel like you're losing control of where 
doing the things that you would normally do to cheer yourself up, feel better. It's just not having the same effect or you really don't have the motivation to kind of get there. It's just not doing what it used to and you're kind of in the stuck place. So we talk about the levels of severity and, you know, DSM-5 being what it is, has all sorts of checklists and whatnot. I tend to stay away from those. Um, I think that's, it's too, you can get kind of caught up in that trap of where exactly are you? And it's, it's more kind of a feel and approach thing. And, and how much is this person really struggling? So there's kind of what we talk about a mild depression, a moderate depression and a severe depression. And I think the best way I can sum up a mild depression is there was this uh, gentleman that I treated a few years ago. He wasn't missing work. Um, he was still going and doing his job, but he really wasn't going out with friends. They were inviting him out. He just didn't have the energy, didn't feel like it. On the weekends, he'd kind of skip showering a little bit, really wouldn't leave the house. And I think the real telltale for him was he had a big family gathering at Disney. It was supposed to be this joyous, amazing event. He ended up spending a lot of time in the hotel because he just didn't feel it in his words. So I think that was really kind of the signal for him that something was off. And we talked more about it. And sure enough, he was experiencing a depression. And I think that's kind of, for me, that's what I think of a lot for kind of the mild depression. That's somebody that notices that like there's some, life feels a little washed out. It's not as exciting as it used to be there. They feel like they're losing a little bit of energy and kind of desire um, to really kind of go experience the world along with, you know, hey, in their private moments or what I call red light moments, if you were waiting for the trolley or the coaster to go by or a really long red light, where do your thoughts drift off to? And it's kind of those sad, you know, I feel down, I feel guilty. Uh, reliving some of the past are kind of the telltales for someone's a little bit stuck where they're at right now. For more like moderate depression, if, if you just say, think of a depressed person, right? Chances are you're thinking of someone who's maybe in pajamas, hasn't showered in a couple of days and is crying, looking out the window, right? I think that's kind of a, a Mm -hmm. If you Google uh, depression on the internet, those are the pictures that are going to show up. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Although depression is not the same for everybody. People do experience it very, very differently. Mm -hmm. But when it's getting to that point of it's really starting to impact your life where it's getting harder to maintain some of those social relationships, maybe those mental health days are starting to become more frequent. And rather than actually feeling recharged and using them for healing purposes, it's starting to feel more like an avoidance, like, I need this, and I, I'm kind of staying indoors or staying in bed. And boy, I just feel like my, my emotions are right underneath the surface, be that happy, sad, be that angry, be that whatever it is, I feel like I'm losing a little control and not able to connect on that like sustained kind of happiness part. That's when someone's starting to trend into a bit more of a moderate depression. And then severe depression is pretty obvious. I think most people either themselves or if not themselves, family members, loved ones, someone who cares about them is able to recognize that you're not eating, you're losing weight, you're not getting out of the house, you're maybe work is talking to you about taking leave, or you might be in the process of losing your job because you're really unable to perform and get out and, and kind of engage. So those are kind of the pictures that I look at, the kind of mental images that I have for what I'm thinking, how severely depressed somebody is or where they fall in that strata. Absolutely. That's a great explanation. And you brought up something too that I think is important that we um, discuss is the somatic or physical symptoms that a person can experience and how that can be connected. I think there's some cultural considerations that is important that we discuss too. So for example, in Latinx culture, we do find a higher prevalence of people who experience depression through their body. They have more headaches, they have more muscle tension or back tension or GI 
GI, we see a lot of GI symptoms um, in certain populations versus others. So I think those cultural considerations are important where, you know, if you're noticing that your body is starting to respond, if you're you're feeling more tense, you're feeling some more GI issues that can't be explained through other medical rationale, uh, through studies and tests, then there might be something going on too that, you know, warrants uh, a discussion with a mental health provider. So I'm glad you brought that up. And, and actually kind of segueing into that, I think it'd be helpful for us to talk about some health conditions that can contribute, that can be confused for depression. What are some of those? Oh, yeah. Um, that certainly runs like the gamut. Really, it boils down to kind of, do you feel really fatigued? You know, are you really low energy, feeling really fatigued? That mirrors a lot of what people experience in depression. Like I said, it's not created equal for everyone. Some people don't have that or experience more irritability. But if it's something that is really kind of sapping your energy, that's something that we start to think about. You know, uh, there are people who experience anemia, which can be part of that. Thyroid problems are really the the more common one. If it falls, you know, if if a person's of a certain age um, and some of the other symptoms are showing up, that's definitely kind of higher on the list. Autoimmune conditions are another one that I think is harder to see because they can be tricky, right? It takes it takes time and it takes some investigation on a doctor's end to kind of figure out what's going on from an autoimmune disorder. But part of what happens in autoimmune is, is that people start to get really fatigued. And it kind of, it, it's not necessarily limited to just certain conditions. It tends to be across the board and how it affects people. Fatigue is a really common part of it. And later in life, things like dementia um, that start to show up um, actually start to mirror some symptoms of depression. Actually, there's a condition that we talk of called pseudo-dementia, where actually depression, believe it or not, can look a very it can look like dementia in a person who's old enough to experience those symptoms. And then when you get them on appropriate treatment, voila, some of the memory problems start to go away. And it really wasn't dementia. It was actually a depression that's kind of akin to a psychotic depression, where it kind of gets off the rails a little bit, which is, you know, a fascinating thing in and of itself. But Older people can respond, and it's not limited to them, but you see it mostly in that kind of population. But it just gets off the rails, and brains just are a little more susceptible to when people experience a depression and just other parts start to kind of take a hit at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up too um, the different populations because, you know, a lot of times uh, it can be confusing. People can make an assumption that it is more medically related and it can be, um, which is where I think it's important. um, And this goes now more to the mental health profession that we are screening for medical first and making sure that we rule out anything that is medical. Yeah. And then from that point forward or in conjunction, right, that we're doing both at the same time ideally. But actually, let me ask you that. What is the common sense approach to treating depression? So it really kind of falls into what's the likelihood? What do you think from a doctor's perspective, just to kind of touch on how you go about looking at this is that, you know, if you have a pretty young, healthy individual who's not showing a lot of other medical symptoms, and a lot of those pieces really fit for depression or anxiety, there may be a a, a workup. They may want to do some blood tests and looking for thyroid, looking for anemia. Sometimes they may not. Sometimes it's such a pretty obvious fit that you don't have to go down uh, that road and you kind of start someone on treatment. And if they don't respond or they start to develop other symptoms that say, oh, maybe we're not on the right track here, then kind of stimulates a lot of uh, more investigation. But when you start to get a little bit into 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond, yeah, 
that's when people will start to, you have to kind of delineate that a little bit more. And there's a little bit more investigation that starts to go in that because that's the more kind of ages that you're going to start to see some of these other things start to present and can show up in weird ways. And fatigue is just like one of the most common, right? That's usually um, how it shows up. So a common sense Mm -hmm. approach to, to depression is the way that I look at this tends to be functionality. Again, how how impaired is somebody by their symptoms? What are they experiencing? And what's their kind of tolerance and motivation for some of the treatments that we have that are available? The, one of the worst things about depression is the very first thing it does is robs you of your motivation um, to kind of get out, to live life, to go do the things, the things that would make you happy and joyful and fun, but also that kind of motivation to go investigate it and talk to somebody and figure out what's going on. Sometimes that just feels like it's completely out of reach for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Or there's what we call learned helplessness. That's a model of depression where it's this idea that things are not going to get better. I'm not, I'm going to feel this way forever. What's the point of talking to someone? What's the point of going to all this? It's not going to help anyway, right? Which is very much a part of depression. We talk about like a negative triad, a negative view of yourself, a negative view of the world around you and a negative view of your future because brains want consistency. They're, they're geared towards survival and they don't care what that consistency looks like. So when it becomes a negative consistency, and that's kind of the back to the nature and nurture, that kind of nature part or the nurture part is when it's to get stuck in kind of this negative consistency, it's a lot of times wants to stay there. And it's through the treatments of like the, of uh, medication management and therapy that we start to kind of jog it out of that. And, and, mm-hmm put a floor underneath what you're, someone's experiencing so that that negative interpretation of the world or life and everything that's coming at you gets a little more even ground. It's more, it's, it's back to neutral and you can kind of navigate it from there. So really common sense approaches are therapy and medications and obviously lifestyle factors. I'm a very big opponent on, mm-hmm. you can't have a healthy mind if you don't have a healthy body. So when someone starts to get that motivation early in treatment or whatever they're doing, if they get just enough energy to put one foot in front of the other, I encourage everyone exercise, socialize, connect with whatever it is that makes you happy. If it's YouTube videos of puppies, anything that's going to spark that back and kind of get that motivation, just that ball rolling. Because once you lose that and once you start to spend more time at home and in that stuck state, Mm -hmm the more time you're going to, you're going to stay there. It does take an act of will at some point to kind of start moving in that direction. Once you start to get a little bit better and that's through therapy and and medications. It's not true for everybody. Some people will do really well with just therapy and it takes time for them. That in my experience tends to be more milder cases where you can kind of, they, they have enough energy and functionality and motivation to start doing those things, to start reconnecting with those parts and make those changes. Mm-hmm. They're really kind of at that point where they can't muster that energy. It just seems a, a bridge too far. Then we're probably down the road of like, let's get you talking to somebody and let's have a conversation about medications and what that kind of treatment looks like. Because studies have shown that the fastest route out of it is usually a combination of both. Right. Absolutely. The golden rule. And I think that um, I like the way that you broke it down because I think it keeps the simplicity of it when we're doing evaluations is, you know, kind of that mild, moderate severity level versus the severe and really making sure that we're in touch with the other provider. And I think I, let me elaborate on that. One question I get a lot, and this is more of a general public question, and I'm curious if you get this too, is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Oh, all the time. All the time, right? And um, and other mental health providers, right? I want to include everybody in that field. There's an important distinction. 
And I think it's good that we discuss that where, and actually I'd like for, for, to ask that question for you, when you get that question, how do you answer it? <laughs> so almost all the time, uh, I am thought of as being a psychologist. So it's, I don't know that a psychiatrist has really, I don't know that it's kind of on the cultural radar. Everyone knows that they exist and, and that we exist and that we're out there, but I don't know that it's kind of that distinction is out there. Um, so when I get that question, what's the difference, or it comes up in, in conversation, I just point out that, you know, uh, psychiatrists have an MD and go to medical school, psychologists go to graduate school, and then, you know, different kinds of therapists may have a master's degree or, or what have you. Um, so I just point out that it, that medical school, thus, we tend to focus a little bit more on kind of it's the knowledge of what are the medical conditions that can look like this. And if someone is depressed, along with lots of other medical conditions, which is really, really common, how do you treat that? What are the medications? What are the interactions? Knowing that just the biology of what all of that looks like, and then obviously in the position to be able to prescribe medications for this treatment is usually, it almost always boils down to, frankly, uh, meds or no, can you prescribe meds or not? (laughs) Is kind of how it comes up in conversation. Mm -hmm, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Yes. I answer it the same way, actually. So I'm so glad we're we're right there. And I think it's important for people to know too, that we work together. It's a team effort, you know, that it, part of the treatment is that we collaborate. Um, so a person who's coming in for this, you're not alone. We're trying to work together as a team to make sure that the treatment is appropriate, that everything is being looked at from every facet, and that you are doing your job from the medical perspective, mm-hmm. and I'm doing mine from a behavioral perspective. And so as a psychologist, that's how I like to kind of compliment whenever I work with a psychiatrist and, and making sure that we're we're doing our best from both angles to, you know, help somebody. And uh, I think it's important to answer that question for a lot of people, because as you get the question all the time, so do I. So it's, yeah, it's good to talk about. You know, something I, I love in there, and I think the kind of collaboration piece, kind of what we do in a complementary sense is really important because I think a brain is a wildly unique organ, right? If your knee hurts and isn't working very well, you can't really talk your way out of that. You just have to like take care of your knee. But if your brain's hurting and not doing very well, we can use medications to help it, but also talking about it helps. Right. You can actually start to treat it by talking about it. Exactly. Well, and with the brain too, I mean, there's a systematic approach that we take as far as the mental health perspective from, you know, the behavioral perspective that really is tried and true, right? This isn't, you know, a hundred years ago where it was kind of, you know, very iffy on what people were talking about. Now we actually have the research, the data. Um, There are things that we know like behavioral activation that really helps, like you were saying earlier, you know, one step in front of the other, making sure that a person understands how to systematically do that. It sounds easy easy, it's not easy. So having someone like guide and be there and assist. um, And that's why, you know, the sessions can be once a week or or more depending on the level of severity of the symptoms. But that's what we do, right? So I, I often tell people a lot of times therapy and this type of treatment is not coming in and just talking about your feelings. It's actually to help you with coping skills that work for you to get your life back on track. Yeah. So I think it's good to just kind of elaborate on that, you know, and talk about that. So in my, my practice, I I do a lot of therapy in addition to medication management. That's, that's what I I really like and, and what I 
the the connection piece is something that I, I really resonate with. But I always look at it this way is, you know, when you look at the boxing movies, they always have that person in the corner who's kind of rooting for him and helping, uh, you know, take care of him. That's kind of the role that I see myself playing. And I think by extension, any of us is in the early stages when you're kind of in the battle, you're in the arena, you're in the you're just kind of throwing the, the punches in the very beginning against this thing that's really kind of entered your life. It helps to be that kind of support person and just kind of help keep track and, and motivate and be a cheerleader and help people kind of keep on track. So when they actually do get that motivation, when they get to that place of one foot in front of the other, then we've given them some framework for, okay, now go do these things, go f- find out what's going to work for you and what's going to bring joy and meaning into your life mm-hmm. and get to that place of, of motivation and, and goodness. Cause you've been in the stuck place for so long. Absolutely. Yes. I completely agree. I think that was a great analogy and, you know, I, I kind of segueing a little bit since we're talking about what we do and the, the forms of treatment, I think it might be helpful to talk about from your perspective on medication management like what is realistic treatment look like? And the question I get a lot is, will I be on meds forever? I'm sure you get that a lot. All yeah, yep. all the time, right? So maybe that might be a good one to, to kind of talk about. Absolutely. So I have this conversation on a pretty much a daily basis. Um, especially there's a lot of people that have probably been dealing with that kind of subclinical form, right? They've been down, life's, like I said, lost some color. It's a little washed out. They've been there for a long time, but eventually they get to this place of, all right, well, it's time to do something about it. So medications are scary, right? Kind of going back to that that knee analogy, if you take some pain medications, some ibuprofen or Tylenol for your knee, it's just ibuprofen and Tylenol. But you know, when we're talking about medications that have the potential to affect your mood or your outlook on life, yeah, people get very nervous about that. Um, so what I tell people, uh, is that I, I start the conversation by saying, I'll tell you what they are and I'll tell you what they're not. They are not happy pills. They will not make you dance in the streets. Um, what they do is, is they help put that floor underneath people so that that stuck place, that feeling down, I'm not able to get one foot in front of the other starts to get easier and starts to get better. People start to have a little more energy and feel like they can engage in those things in life. And I tell people all the time that a really thoughtful approach to these medications is they're a tool. They're a tool for a specific purpose and to be used for a specific purpose. Because when you're building a house, you need certain tools to build the foundation. When that foundation is built, you're ready to move on and use different tools for the rest of the house. And I think that's how these medications typically work. And I also have the conversation all the time that, you know, we're talking about depression, but it's really the same conversation if we say diabetes, right? You have this condition that has shown up in your life. You didn't choose to have it. It now requires some monitoring, maybe some like medications. It requires treatments and doctor visits and all that kind of thing. Some people are going to be able to manage it with lifestyle factors. Some people are going to need medications for a while. And some people kind of no matter what they do are going to end up on medications for the foreseeable future. And I think depression follows a similar course. For those who are in the mild to moderate category. Yeah. You know, they end up on medications. It takes a few months to really see the benefit. Most people feel something, something that's a little hard to pin down. They can't quite put their finger on, but they feel maybe a little better within a couple of weeks. That's pretty typical, but four to six weeks. And then from there, we have to make sure that we're on the right track with the medication. You're not having major side effects. And then are you at the right dose? Cause you may need a higher dose. So usually the first couple of months, it's really just trying to dial it in and make sure it's working right. And then you just let it do the heavy lifting in the background. So when I talk to people, I say, you should really be thinking in kind of six month blocks with this. Minimum is kind of six months. Maybe you're, if you're having a really mild thing or you're just going through something in your life and you're feeling a lot better at the six month mark, okay, you can 
get off them and see how you do. For most people, I think though, kind of a year is a really normal kind of time frame. And what's the strength of the medications? Well, they're just doing, they're the star of the show in the background. You're just letting them do the heavy lifting. And when people are more motivated, they feel better, they're back to life. That's the stuff that's going to carry you forward. It's being able to reconnect and remember who you are in the good times and be able to have that positive outlook again, which is, again, it's what depression robs you of. When you get to that place, probably don't need the medications anymore. You got this. You're, you're doing okay on your own. And then there are the people who, like Abraham Lincoln, I've, uh, he's famous for having very severe bouts of depression. He's probably someone that would have been on you know, in the modern era would have been on medications for the foreseeable future because it's just, you know, it was something that was really severe. It was really debilitating for him. And there's some people that do better. I will say this. There's also someone I think of um, a person, a professional that I was treating fairly recently. And uh, she had just had a lot of work stress and then uh, COVID pandemic times and just really, really affected her. So she ended up with a lot of panic symptoms, but that kind of started to snowball into a significant depression and I got pretty bad. So ended up using Prozac, tried and true. It's been around for decades and she started to do a lot better. And as she was getting a lot better, she started to connect the dots that, oh, I've had GI symptoms. I've had poor sleep. I have had bouts of anxiety and panic before, and she came to the conclusion, I probably should have tried this a while ago. So eventually she came to the decision. uh, Her words were, I like me and my husband likes me more on Prozac. She felt better and she felt that she wanted it as part of her treatment for at least a while, a while longer. And she'd been in about a year at that point. So there are some people that just feel better and they make the decision to stay on it for a while. And then there are other people, like I said, who are more severe and, and really it has to be part of their treatment for a while. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that's such a, such a nice story. It's so great to hear the stories when people start to feel, I want to, I don't want to use the word normal because what does that even mean? But that they feel more like themselves, yeah. feel a little bit better. I think that's always just a wonderful thing to hear. Um, and I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to nerd out a little bit because I am a huge fan of neurobiology mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I think it's, it's important for us to talk a little bit more about the, neurobiological um, effects of medications Mm -hmm. on the brain and, you know, what medications do. And also you brought up some things about, you know, medications, but I'm curious about the side effects too, because I get that question a lot. So that could be really helpful to answer for mental health providers as well as the general public. Let me start with that because that's usually what uh, a lot of people, let's, the concern is, will it change me? Is it going to change my personality? Am I going to become, you know, air quotes, addicted to them, meaning that it's going to be difficult to get off of them? And then what are the side effects? There are some people that will feel a little bit kind of the emotional highs and lows seem to go away a little bit. That's, you know, they feel a little numb on these medications. I'd say that's a not a normal response. So that usually means we should probably try a different medication. So that kind of gets at, will it change my personality outside of that experience? No, not really. You're still who you are. And and honestly, it's to get you connected with the other part of you, the part of you that's happy and, and sees life a little bit differently and gets out of that stuck place where it's just feels hard all the time. Short-term side effects when we start treatment or increased dosing. Um, it's a little known, uh, this isn't commonly known, I think, among people, but you actually have more serotonin receptors in your GI system than you do in your brain. So kind of upset guts, upset stomach for the first few days, maybe a week or so, a little shakiness in your hands and headache, really, really common, um, should go away in a handful of days. But 
the peskier side effects with these medications tend to be uh, weight gain and then sexual dysfunction. So that can be, usually it's a loss of libido and then weight gain. That's what the textbooks say. What I have found over the course of my career is that's really tough to say. You know, it's really tough to pin down exactly what's going on. Some people for sure experience that. And then you usually just try a different medication that, that often solves the issue. That said, though, when it comes to, you know, depression, some people gain weight, right? They're, they're not taking care of themselves. They're not exercising. They're maybe eating a, a pint of ice cream because it just makes them feel good in the moment. And over a long enough period of time, you know, obviously there's some weight gain that comes with that. So you get people on these medications and suddenly they feel better and they start losing weight. They're, they, they care more. They, they have the energy and desire to pay attention and to what they're eating matters to them more. And then they start exercising more. On the other side, weight loss is actually really common in depression as well because you just don't have the motivation or energy to eat. So sometimes what I see is we get people on medication and now their appetite comes roaring back. So some weight gain isn't necessarily from the medications. It's that they really want to go out and have a good time and enjoy food and connection with their family and friends again. There is one thing I think it's important to mention is that sometimes, though these medications are designed to treat you know, depression and anxiety, and especially if people are having like suicidal thoughts, there are rare circumstances where it does suddenly seem to make it worse. It's thankfully very rare. I've only seen it a few times in my career and tends to be people who are 24 or less. Actually, when we start these medications, we, we give a warning about that um, to pay attention to it. And if it happens, you know, stop the medication, call your doctor and if really, really like emergent, go to an emergency room, call 911, you know, get yourself immediate help. So I think that's an important thing to put out there. And I think that's part of what people are always concerned about with these medications. Is that going to happen to me? And what's the likelihood? Like I said, thankfully, I see it quite rare and it tends to be in younger people. But the vast majority of the other side effects tend to be just pretty mild things. And if it's really cumbersome or problematic, we try a different medication. They're all theoretically created equal. Um, so sometimes if a person's never been on these medications before, it's not great. There's not a great guidance to choose one versus another. So it boils down to kind of what you, the doctor's experience is and, uh, what medications you're, what medications you like, what you're the most familiar with and what people seem to respond to with minimal side effects. So that's often kind of the guiding, I think, uh, thoughts and principles. So it really kind of runs the gamut in terms of, of what medication someone will start with. And then it's just a matter of fine tuning. Right. Excellent. And when we talk a little bit about that, uh, you were mentioning serotonin and I actually did not mm. know that about the GI tract. So thank you for um, that educational piece. This is why I love doing this. I feel like I learn tidbits all the time, but uh, yeah, from a neurobiological perspective, how are medications helping people? I, I know we brought up serotonin, but I'm curious in, on that for you. Yeah. So we know there's a dance with these neurotransmitters. You know, hey, it's 2022 and we can put a man on the moon, but he still has to take Prozac if he's depressed up there, right? <laughs> um, so we don't have a fine understanding of exactly how this works. And there's kind of the, the main neurotransmitters that we think about are serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, and dopamine that have a lot to do with kind of mood control and, and what our medications tend to target. Serotonin tends to be chief among them. We know that there's a relative depletion of serotonin, exactly why that happens, don't know, kind of getting back to the nature and nurture, some people that may happen just like diabetes. Sometimes the pancreas doesn't cooperate or their cells aren't cooperating. And that's something that happens versus, you know, life stress and kind of getting in this stuck place seems to downregulate those receptors for reasons we don't entirely understand. So you end up with this relative depletion of serotonin 
And that's what we've been able to associate with depression. Is that 100%? No, it's more, that's an oversimplification. But what our medications do is they actually start increasing the amount of serotonin that's available. And then that starts over a long enough period of time, increasing the number of receptors and kind of getting them back to where they were. Um, Exactly why that mechanism seems to translate to mood. That is a a problem we are going to be solving for a while longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up that we're still learning, right? This is, uh, you know, we've had the the blessed fortune of having all of these wonderful scientific uh, abilities now and, and, you know, testing and research that we didn't have 50 years ago. So we're, we're still learning the brain. We're still getting this data, but we do know about uh, serotonin levels. We do know about the neurotransmitters and we do at least have some idea of what is, you know, effective and has efficacy for people. Um, now, everybody's a little different, like you said. So it's important to know Actually, and I think that this, here's a a question. When is it time to get a psychiatrist involved? So, because since we all are a little different, you know, for one person, you know, I I agree with the severity levels and I think that's a a good model for us to follow, but we are a little different. So what do you recommend for a person who has, you know, some depressive symptoms? When should they see you? You know, I take a pretty, I paint with a broad brush on that, meaning that if they're motivated to do so, anyone is welcome. You know, if they're curious about it or just want to come and have a conversation about medications, I get that a lot. Some people who are kind of weighing whether it's the right decision for them or whether that's a road that they want to go down. It is a commitment. We have to take them every day and knowing that treatment is probably a minimum of six months. You know, for some people, that's that's a tough ask, right? That said, if someone is interested, by all means, come to a psychiatrist and have the conversation. When it's time when it gets to a point where this is probably something that you're, it's not going to really get better on its own and really does need some help is when we're kind of in that moderate and definitely severe category. Suicidal thoughts generally kind of push into more the moderate to severe category. That's kind of also a bit of a, a dividing line in my mind between what's a mild depression versus what's starting to get a little bit more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that's going to be a bit challenging. Therapy is fantastic. It just takes time. Right. It's nature. Of right. It. Uh, just in, as it takes months for these medications to work, a brain is a complicated thing. And to try and rewire some of that just takes time and consistency mm-hmm. because you're activating some ancient part that's a little bit that, that's more concerned with your survival and that consistency to try and convince that ancient part of your brain. Hey, it's OK. There really isn't a bear around the corner. It's OK if we, we we're not in this learned helplessness place that takes time. Mm-hmm. So for someone that's experiencing more severe symptoms of they can't get out the door, they're struggling in their their relationships, they're crying all the time, or they're angry, they're irritable, they notice that they just fly off the handle, which is more common, a more common presentation in men, actually, um, when it comes to depression. That's when it's usually time to start to talk to a psychiatrist and, and or your primary care physician or somebody that is in a position to kind of educate you down that. And I think this is also a a beautiful intersection with psychologists and therapists is you guys have such a great handle on this and often direct people. I can't tell you how many um, therapists call me or patients come to me and are saying, you know, I've been talking to my therapist for about three months and they they really been telling me I need to be on meds. Yep. And I think that that's, I'm glad that you said that because that's where that collaboration comes in and that we were able to bounce off each other because the medication, again, very significant when we have the neurobio piece to this. And then there is the cognitive piece, the big cognitive behavioral piece, which is why the treatments are so important that they are connected depending on the severity level, depending on the symptoms. And the in the mild cases, 
you know, a lot of times, like you said, the motivation levels, that's a huge piece to that. If a person can be consistent and learning their new coping mechanisms or continuing coping mechanisms that are effective, medication may not be warranted. But if we're trying and we're trying and we're trying, but the motivation isn't there, you know, the consistency just isn't there. It's just, it's not working. Um, that's a signal. That's a signal that something else uh, is not helping and, and it, or something else might be going on and we need additional help. So um, yeah, I, I follow the same kind of rule there. So that that's really good. I'm curious too, when we talk about depression, a lot of times this does, it creeps across all facets of a person's life. It impacts in ways that we just discussed, you know, really the impairment is pretty uh, it can be pretty severe. Once you go through something like that, whether it's a major depressive episode or whether it's a major depressive disorder and it's uh, you know recurrent, I'm curious how. What advice do you give to people on how to get back to or keep up with their normal daily life when they're coming out of depression or bouncing back from it? Yeah, I, this is always where I go back to, like I, kind of your your hurt knee right? It's an easier conversation to have, right? We're so, we're so unforgiving and uncharitable to our brains. We think we can just will our way out of this, right? Which is not the approach you would take if your knee hurt, right? It's just, it's a, it's a fact of life that some of your body parts are going to hurt. We don't take that personally. We don't see that as a moral failing in some way, but I don't think that extends over to depression or some mental health symptoms. Sometimes we just, I think there's a, a lot of bias that that we should be able to just manage this on our own. So what I really like to tell people is to be patient that you have been running a mental marathon for a while. Um, your brain wants to heal. It wants to take a load off. And the when you've gotten to that place of depression, it's kind of a signal from your brain saying, hey, slow down a little bit. I don't necessarily like what's happening here. So being really patient with that process and understanding that it's you're not going to have perfect days. Um, this isn't to make, there, there's no way to make every day be fantastic right? That's just not part of life. Even when people are feeling better and feeling, you know, more like themselves and more air quotes normal. It's to really kind of shore up that when you're feeling good is when you plan for not feeling good. That's when it's time to sit down and think about what makes me feel good. What are the, the resources and supports that I have? Who are the people that I like to talk to? What are the things that I like to do? And what's the canary in the coal mine? What do I see and other people see that says I'm not doing well and I should probably start to talk to somebody or go to therapy more often or kind of reconnect with my uh, psychiatrist. When people are coming out of it, it's usually really kind of encouraging them to start to find those pieces that just make them feel whole, that make them feel good and, and bring a little meaning to their life and really lean into that. But also the understanding that just because you have a bad day or a bad couple of days, the emotions aren't there, you're feeling down again, doesn't mean you're losing progress. It doesn't mean that it's coming back. It doesn't mean you're taking steps backwards. It, that's just kind of how this works. The, you're Even when you're rehabbing your knee, it's not going to feel great every day. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, great, great. Um connection there because, um, you know, a lot of times I think we forget that the brain is an organ. It's a, it's a part of us just like any other part of us and that we have to give it time to heal. We have to give it time to do its job and that this is what we're focusing on. You know, this is what treatment is for. And, um, you know, patience is a virtue here. Um, it can be hard. We're not saying it's easy, but that that is something that is, it is possible. And I really like um, using the word hope mm. here and knowing that uh, as long as we hold on to that and that we continue doing what we're doing, um, nothing at least makes me happier. I'll say when I work with somebody and they're like, you know, I feel better. Mm. I, right? I just, I'm starting to feel better. Yeah. That is just, oh, 
one of the best feelings. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. I, and just that, that patience piece is critical, right? Because people, by the time they've actually, by the time they're coming to help, by the time they've recognized something is really not right, they're tired. They're tired of feeling tired. They're tired of feeling what they're feeling and they want it to go away tomorrow. And that's something that obviously we put them on the path down and they put themselves on the path down because they're getting help and they're connecting. They're asking questions of themselves. They're asking, what do I do now? Um, which is massive. And I think mm-hmm. a really courageous thing to be able to take that step back and say, I don't feel good. I don't want to feel this way forever. I'm a little afraid this isn't uh, tomorrow. It seems so far away. Um, and getting themselves into obviously treatment help and and connecting with uh, the resources and supports that are going to help them get better. That is a massive and important and courageous step. So I think our role and responsibility in that is also the patient side of be patient with yourself. You know, this just kind of landed on your doorstep for a variety of reasons. I think there's a temptation to kind of, like I said, see it as a bit of a, a somehow a failing and it isn't mm-hmm. it just is what it is. It showed up and, you know, we've got to deal with it in the way that we've got to deal with it. There is hope and progress and you will get there, but it takes time and be patient with yourself and learn something about yourself in the process. Cause there's a, a massive, massive learning curve that goes with, Oh, okay. Well, some people can connect the dots and say, I see how I see the stress. I see the, the, the weight, the burden I've been carrying that got me here. I don't want to do that again. It's time to do something different. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought up, uh, to kind of summarize it, the self-compassion component, um, that Mm. we do have to be self-compassionate and that there's reasons and rationales. And that's part of the process is learning ourselves and working through that process in order to not only understand ourselves, but not repeat the same patterns if they are in fact detrimental or maladaptive. So I think on that note, I'm so happy that you came on today. I think this is so important to get this information out to the general public, but also for mental health providers that are listening, you know, any, any things that, you know, hopefully got filled in if there was questions um, here, especially from the medication management perspective. But uh, before we wrap up, is there any thoughts that you have before we finish? Oh, I had a question for you. So how do you, Oh, sure. so when people come to you, how do you kind of go down that, that road of all right, we need to rope in some more professionals. What's that kind of process for you? Yeah. So for for me personally, um, I like to do a very thorough assessment. So I actually do, um, I have uh, my clients go to, or at least tell me if they've had any um, rule outs for medical concerns. So it, when was their last physical? That's the one of the first questions I ask. I want to know, you know, if they've had any type of somatic or physical symptoms. I also do, uh, that's why I added earlier the cultural component. I, I want to understand mm-hmm. a little bit about their background. You know, we miss that a lot, by the way, in our field. Uh, mm-hmm. Cultural mm-hmm. considerations are very important oh, yeah. to take into, con- you know, t- to take in an assessment um, because, you know, that's that's something that I wasn't taught very thoroughly. And I think most grad schools miss that in m- medical schools, too. I've actually worked with a lot of psychiatrists that say, you know, I don't think about the cultural piece a lot because it's not actually, yeah. you know, it's getting better. It's It's not been talked about. It's getting better now. Um, but in previous years, it hasn't been. So, you know, those those are kind of the most important for me in the initial assessment and then level of severity, just like you said, motivation, functionality. I, I also categorize mild, moderate, severe um, history. Also, history is very important in the assessment. You know, what is the historical context here? Is this recurrent? Is this new, you know, triggers? What's occurred here? Is this something that's uh, an acute situation that, you know, they've never had a history of depression before? Um, so it could be explained. Explained uh, by you know recent events. Of course, somebody 
uh, death in the family is going to cause grief and bereavement, right? Um, and depressive symptoms. But is it temporary? Is it temporal or is it is temporary or is it something that's, you know, long term? So that's kind of how I do it. Um, for mild cases, you know, I get a lot of this and I'm sure you've heard it where people are like, I don't want to start on medication. I, I don't want to go there yet. And and that's fine. You know, I, I tell them, let's let's try out, you know, some uh, different treatment protocols. Let's go ahead and try some some work here. And I personally like to customize it a little bit. I pull from, uh, you know, all the evidence-based uh, practices and see what makes the most sense based on what they, you know, prefer. But, uh, you know, there are things that are tried and true, right? So for depression, behavioral activation, um, things like that, and oh, yeah. uh, CBT work and, you know, I, I, DBT work, depending on, uh, you mm-hmm. know, if there is suicidal ideation, things like that. But uh, at the end of the day, it, uh, personally, I find it very important from the initial assessment to ask about medical you know, to ask about the last checkup, because I've just found that, you know, a lot of times if we miss that, you know, I actually had a patient not too long ago that um, she came in with severe depression on and off, asked the question, she hadn't had a checkup in years, went to her GP mm. and found uh, thyroid levels were off yeah. and went on medication and she was fine. So no depressive symptoms. So I, I think that part is really significant um, for myself. You know, I, I personally do that. Yeah, and no, I think that's fantastic that you're kind of really taking that into consideration, especially like you were talking about uh, Latinx in terms of sometimes this is going to show up with more somatic focus. There are some cultures that that's more classic for the presentation versus kind of Western culture, where I think, you know, talking about sadness, feeling down or feeling irritable tends to be more kind of the, the language that we use. Different cultures have different language for this, and it may not be a verbal language. It's a nonverbal language in a lot of cases. Exactly, exactly, which is also important in that initial assessment, right, to, to try to gather as much data and information as possible. So that way, we're doing the appropriate steps. Um, but uh, I think a physical to me just kind of rules out at that point, just making sure that somebody's from the jump looking at the body, making sure that there's a medical provider that's looking at that is the collaboration that you know, I think it's very necessary. And then at, at that point, if there's, we're ruling out anything medical, if everything is, is looking good, now we know that, you know, th- there's something going on here that's more mental health based. And, and that's where, of course, a person like you will also come in because that's where there may be something that we can't pick up that's uh, more neurobiological. So yeah, but that collaboration, I think that's everything. And, and I'm so grateful for you coming on the show because, um, you know, a lot of times we have, uh, you know, the San Diego Psychological Association is, is, made up of a lot of mental health providers that are psychologists, but not as many psychiatrists. We, we'd we love to have more. And, and I think we're doing a better job at uh, uh, reaching out and talking to psychiatry and psychiatrists and making sure that we're, we're collaborating more, but uh, it's, we need each other. You know, this is, this is how we uh, make a person feel whole and, and do the work together. Absolutely. It's not just that one person in the, in the boxing ring. It's, there's a bunch of yeah, us. Yes. Yeah, if you watch Rocky, he had more than one. So <laughs> we are we are the mick of, you know, cheerleading and, and getting people of the mental health world, you know? Yes, absolutely. And it makes it more fun to have that collaboration too, to make sure that we're we're checking each other out too. Like, hey, what's going on on your end? And it just it helps to have that extra uh, extra support for each other too. So, oh, I'm so grateful that you were here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. Any additional final thoughts for people listening? Yes. Um I have my own uh, clinic practice, uh, Avio Wellness. I combine kind of a, a 
psychiatric approach with uh, some general wellness and focus on a lot of lifestyle factors. Um, so uh, if anyone is interested, by all means, uh, look us up. And again, I can't thank you enough for having me on. I agree. I think we need to do more things like this. And uh, I think my colleagues could definitely benefit from that collaboration too. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to post your information as well. I was actually going to, to have that as the final piece, how people can get a hold of you, but we'll also make sure that we have that information um, in the commentary uh, of this podcast. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. D. Hey, Michelle, thank you so much. You take care. 